Hello, casual cognizers. Thank you for joining us again today. We got a special episode for you. We are doing a glass bead style game with the theme of death. So we're going to bring back the recurring segments, ancestral lifestyles, practical philosophy, and the temple. And we're going to revolve around the theme of death. So please enjoy this episode of Casual Cognition. Welcome. How are you doing, Hank? Well, I'm doing great. Yeah. How about you? I'm feeling alive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Except for my fire alarm just went off. Uh-oh. <laughs> are you about to go up in a... No, my roommates. Fiery blaze. My roommates were cooking breakfast. I hope that won't be too loud later. If not, I will individually take it out. Unless you want to start again. It's off now. All right. Well, anyways, I'm feeling alive today, bud. How are you feeling? Dude, I'm uh, I'm feeling alive as well. Yeah? I'm pretty sure I'm alive. Have you checked? You know, I think, therefore, I am, that whole business. <laughs> I'll just, uh, yeah, for the sake of You know we don't believe just... that around here. <laughs> For the sake of simplicity, I'll just uh, roll that one off the old Descartes. Okay. Well, you should always check to you know check the old pulse, see if you're still kicking. Isn't that what they do in all the movies to check whether you're dead? Right, but what about vampires, dude? <laughs> Well, you know, I found out something kind of interesting. I found out that, like, I'm not sure if it's, like, a law or if it's just procedure. But if you're, like, an EMT and you arrive on a scene where somebody is is, is basically dead, they don't pronounce the death there. They actually wait till they get them back to the hospital. And I've uh, I've read a couple of articles about uh about death pronouncements and how like political they can get in the you know not like you know governmental politics but you know what I mean sort of PR kind of stuff because you know mm. for example um I actually started to to look into this because of the uh, the George Floyd murder situation. And 
because he was pronounced dead at the hospital later, even though he was like definitely dead at the scene. Hmm. And there was like a deep dive into why that was the case and why it's really normal. And it's a lot easier, apparently, to prove in court that you didn't kill somebody as a police officer because you can just be like, no, they didn't die there. They died at the hospital two hours later. And there's like all kinds wow. of shenanigans that are that surround these uh, these death pronouncements. And the other strange thing is, I won't get into the the nitty gritty on this, but it does kind of feed into our topic here. Um, medical examiners and coroners, the two people that are like it's their responsibility to look at dead bodies. Um. One, there's there's no re- prerequisites to being a coroner, so you can just have zero medical training and be a coroner. And there's actually a ton of coroners in the United States that have no medical training and are doing autopsies on people. And one of the big reasons for this is that there's just hardly anybody who wants to do this job. And medical examiners are basically a coroner that actually has a uh, like a medical license and, and has training. They're like super rare in the United States. And if you want to look into this, um, go on YouTube and look up uh, Last Week Tonight has a really good rundown of this issue. Um, you can look up medical examiners on that. But it's there's hardly anybody who actually looks at these dead bodies and does autopsies. And it's one of the reasons why there's a lot of like unsolved crimes and stuff involving dead people because there's so many untrained people doing autopsies. And once again, it gets kind of political. And So you're telling me that there's not a a John Grisham (laughs) in every city? What was that show called again? CSI. CSI, just like no, there's... zoom, zoom in, zoom well, in see, again. This particular species <laughs> of beetle is only found in peat moss. <laughs> no, it's, no yeah, there's not, like a... there's none of those. Damn, that's unfortunate. I mean, that they... <laughs> okay. I was about to go on a whole spiel, a whole spiel we'll, about that, but we won't get into we don't, why we don't those shows are shit complete today. irresponsible bullshit. <laughs> complete nonsense it's the same thing as uh as hospital shows you know they they sort of romanticize these actually very labor-intensive difficult science-heavy industries that are you know most of the process pretty boring and doesn't fit on a tv screen very well but it it, this all kind of feeds into what we're going to be talking about this whole episode which is death and our cultural philosophical and spiritual perceptions around death and we're going to start off with the uh with the cultural stuff you know how our society approaches this and one thing i wanted to ask you hank is that have you seen any difference moving to sweden in this subject like do do the swedes um 
have a different attitude or a different approach to death than Americans do? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a great question. And it's also a really interesting, specifically with the U.S. and Sweden, because Sweden, like, imports a lot of culture from the U.S. Uh, there's kind of like a... I don't know it's almost like a little brother syndrome or something where they're like always looking at what the u.s is doing and like oh those movies are so cool and like is that why you guys decided not to do a covid lockdown ah uh, actually <laughs> the funny thing about that is they decided to do that because uh they basically consulted a group of experts they consulted scientists uh, to decide what they should do rather than just like talking out of their ass and thinking. And of course, there was a political reason for this because then they can just blame it on the scientists when if things go wrong. But um, to get back to your question, uh, I would say the main difference that I've noticed so far is uh, it was with the cemeteries. So, like, here in Malmö, there are cemeteries, like, kind of littered throughout the city. Um, and they're kind of connected, but, like, they're, they're these... And they're just beautiful. They're really just beautiful little little plots in the middle of the city where you can, like, get away from everything in a sense in, in a sense um they're they put a lot of care into planting different kinds of trees and shrubs and flowers and all kinds of different stuff and and um and maybe that there are cemeteries like that in the states but the main difference is that people people just go to the cemetery that like they'll go and they'll walk around uh by themselves or with with loved ones and just like enjoy the space. Uh, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but it's kind of like a stoic, it's kind of a stoic practice actually. Uh, yeah. Which we'll, yeah, we'll talk about that later, but that's kind of been the main difference that I've noticed because like in the States, from what I've seen, people just don't go to the cemetery unless they're going to like, uh, you know, give flowers to their, uh, deceased loved one or or family yeah. member or whatever yeah sometimes i'll go into a cemetery to eat lunch or something like that because it's the only place i know i won't get bugged by somebody yeah like if you're just sitting in a cemetery eating lunch nobody nobody bothers you yeah and you're probably not going to see anybody and yeah very rarely if i'm doing that i very rarely see another person there and one thing that that makes me think of is um, I like to think about sort of the the tropes in our culture, you know, things in cartoons and advertising um, setups and stuff like that. And what's like the the token? spooky place that has some kind of air of ominous um, danger or darkness 
it's always a fucking graveyard. Yeah. Like there's always like a big gate, big iron gate, and you can see the the statues in the back. Usually there's a cross one, and there's a there's some headstones around. Usually and there's just there's like a... dead trees and yeah. like no life at all. Yeah, maybe some crows. Yeah, like the the presence of the dead bodies has corrupted the grounds. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I I find that to be very telling of our attitude towards death. Definitely, because here in America we are absolutely terrified and almost like. I'd actually say it's even, it goes even beyond being terrified, because being terrified to be terrified of something you have to acknowledge it, its existence. And I would say right. that Americans are just in complete denial about death. Yeah, it's just completely repressed. It's just yeah. like, don't think and, about it, don't talk about it, don't acknowledge it. Either that, or in the uh, in the media space, it's like it's got to be like really, it's got to be a really really visceral intense death it's got to have some kind of martyrdom or meaning or you've got to get like brutally murdered like mm. yeah know, or so, just like drug overdose or yeah disease or... yeah there's got to be some kind of dramatic something behind it it you know even even in the old age things you've got somebody sitting next to the bed and they just sort of like <laughs> <laughs> and then no <laughs> they it's, drop the snow globe yeah and there's there's always this like dramatic scene behind it when most people die in a fucking white room in a hospital by themselves or surrounded by nurses and doctors and uh you know then they get shoved in a drawer it's there's no there's no romanticism about actual the real the realities of death here and we turn it into yeah. an actual horror thing through our denial and our sweeping under the rug of death. Yeah, it's so it's so interesting because uh, just to kind of like connect this to the the ancestral lifestyle segment, like we because what we kind of like to explore in this is like. Because it's not just about, like, we've talked about this before. It's not just about, like, praising how everything used to be so great in antiquity when we were hunter-gatherers and everything was amazing. I mean, there there were things that were pretty epic and interesting. And, like, there were obviously pe- people's psychological well-being, like, they were much better off in a lot of ways. Um, but just... Contra- comparing and contrasting our the our modern lifestyles and our cultural ideas with those of our ancestors and that's one of the huge differences as well like we talked about how um in modernity like we're getting further and further away from nature and by extension we're getting further and further away from death we go into the grocery store and there's just like a fucking pack of chicky nuggies yeah, there's, uh, and there's it's like, almost no relation between what you're shoving into your mouth and the animal that yes. died to uh, produce that thing. You know, a steak yeah. has nothing to do with the cow. Yeah, so obviously, like, in antiquity, you would have, depending on the culture, but, like, you would have uh, a whole ritual around 
uh, killing an animal, for example, that could that could um, have yeah different ideas with sacrifice or prayer and gratitude and like connecting with the mother mother nature uh and it's just a whole different thing because there's there's like a respect there and there's Mm -hmm. a there's an acknowledgement of like of thankfulness and gratitude of like oh this being gave its life so that i could live and maybe it didn't do it on like maybe it would rather live than die but i'm still grateful for this transfer of energy and i'm grateful to mother nature for the abundance that she has given us right yeah and like so and then also not only that but during those times like infant mortality was way higher they were way more likely to get a infection and die or get killed by a rival tribe or or while hunting getting injured and all these different things so death was just part of life like it was just that's what happens yeah and this is you know going way back into pre-agricultural days mostly although but even then dude even then there's a lot of death oh no i'm 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 not saying that i'm saying that um the attitudes towards death started to shift a lot once we got into the agricultural thing because then it becomes um you know there's there's different cultures did it better than others but there becomes a sort of property aspect to it whereas hunter-gatherer oh. communities kind of go out and see the animals as you know part of the land and they're it's like a you know a, a and that they are thing. too yeah and then you get into the oh. agricultural area and then it's like suddenly i own these creatures and you know, that's that's when you get Whoa. into a lot of the animal sacrifice stuff because it's like, oh, I'm sacrificing something. I'm giving something that I own. And um, Whoa, just real quick, bro. Yeah. I want to just interject because I, I, you stumbled upon something really interesting here, which is that maybe this is another part of it because when you're in an agricultural society, now you are – the group is the family instead of the tribe. Yeah. So if – your child dies suddenly that's a huge deal because that's a a worker that is gone like that's somebody who's gonna like that's your insurance at that point in a tribe Mm -hmm. it's a little bit different because if your child dies obviously it's tragic and it's like nobody it's it's obviously going to be painful for anyone but there's not you're not depending on your children for survival yeah in the same way that you are in a in these agricultural societies where like when i get old my body is going to be so fucked from working my entire life manual labor that i'm going to i need to have children to take care of me yeah or else i'm fucked so then maybe that was part of that shift in mindset as well i'm sure because that um that continued on until pretty much the industrial era And, um, so, you know, 12,000 years basically. And one thing that I wanted to mention is that a lot of those hunter gatherer tribes we see through anthropological studies these days on modern hunter gatherers, they have a lot of like cultural, um, structures built in to deal with infant mortality. So if you mm. look at like how a 
the death of a child would affect a mother in a hunter-gatherer community versus how the death of a child would affect a woman in the suburbs of Dallas, Texas. It's a completely different thing. Yeah. And, you know, even though it's the same exact um, situation and, and there's obviously a lot of grief that goes along with the hunter-gatherer, they have a lot of, like, cultural expectations around those things. And it, it, you know, it's 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 a lot more expected and happens. And, you know, growing up and seeing that, they've probably seen multiple children die. Yeah. And so it, it doesn't carry the same kind of, like, trauma that um, the the woman in the suburbs would have. And... Uh, yeah, especially know. with all the cultural conditioning and expectations around what it means to be a woman. Yeah, it has the exact opposite. And to be here. a wife and, yeah, that whole shit yeah if you're in a hunter-gatherer tribe and your child dies a you probably have another child or you're going to have another child because they you know they regularly have children and also you're gonna have a whole community around you yeah you know everybody's going to support you and you may have support as the person in the suburbs but it's not going to be the same thing. You know, your family is going to be somebody's in New York, somebody's in California, somebody's in North Dakota. And, you know, they'll come and visit for a little bit to cheer you up. But there's mm. going to be a substantial amount of time, even if you have a significant other, where you have to deal with that loss alone. Yeah, and and to to keep going on this point, those people who are going to come and cheer you up are completely unable to talk about what actually happened and they're yeah. just going to be like so uh, uh, yeah you know he's in a better uh, place now yeah I mean I mean and even that like even just to acknowledge the fact that the child is dead is already more than what I think a lot of people are capable of at least from what I've seen from my experience uh I mean, if we're just talking about random lady in, in the suburbs, um, yeah, I don't know. I guess I don't know that many random ladies in the suburbs, so it's hard. To, <laughs> it's hard to say for sure, but I don't know. I just it seems like a lot of people are just not really able to go to that place emotionally. It's just like easier to just try to be just be nice and like yeah. oh is there anything i can like do for you like yeah. do you want how about a casserole or... yeah like just oh i'll just make you food and like drinks and stuff and then that will be my way of showing that i care rather than like have you know giving emotional support and like helping to kind of move through that yeah i forget what show i saw them them do this this sort of joke on but um, this family had a child die and somebody knocks on their door and it's, it's like one of their neighbors and they give them a casserole and they take it and they go to the fridge and there's like 18 casseroles in there. <laughs> <laughs> it's like people, like you said, people have no idea actually how to support somebody. So they just are like, I guess I'll make them some food. I guess I'll go, you know clean their house for them or something they try to do some kind of active service which is nice but it doesn't quite compare to having a, a a community around you that you 
love and trust and who has you know is sharing the loss with you and um you know once we got to the I'll skip ahead once we got to the industrial era there was a a sort of drop off of the whole family unit that you were talking about where each family needed to have 10 kids because three or four of them were going to die and the other six you needed for the farm now you've got the the like the average amount of children per family starts to go down dramatically in the industrial era and interestingly enough as the nations around the world have industrialized the same thing has happened and that's one of the reasons why our our birth rate kind of skyrocketed for a while because the the industrial era is kind of think about it as kind of an inertia thing so it allowed us to bring down the child mortality rate and then our population skyrocketed but it level it's leveling off because people are having more or less and less children because more of them are surviving yeah and more countries are industrializing now yeah and, and they so, don't rely on them as they don't need to rely on them as much for their survival yeah. in later in life yeah so even throughout those 11 12,000 years of agricultural societies there was still plenty of death around you're going to see children die you're going to see animals die you're probably going to slaughter animals yourselves or you're going to you'll live in a city where you see other anim- animals get slaughtered and people die but once you get to the industrial age, then that starts to slow down some. And we start to come up with, like, industrialized solutions to take care of dead people. And yeah. we come up with institutions. And, and, and with farming as well. Yeah, and farming. Yeah, and uh, just like yeah. everything else. Everything everything gets, gets um, systemized and categorized and put into an institution. Hmm. And... Now we're we're in you know full modernity and we're basically past the industrial age in the in the West and you know a lot of other places in the world but you know what I mean um and we're in a sort of I guess there's a bunch of different names for it the information age the internet age whatever you want to call it and now I mean death is almost completely hidden from us. Except for through these these you know fake media versions of it, and one example of this is kind of funny is how is like the reactions I get when we feed our snake, and other people see it, like it's either fascination or revulsion because a lot of the people who see this this, this is it's their first time ever watching something die. And, wow, you know it's a it's it's a rat. So it makes it easier for people, but even then, it's it's still a, a little mammal, you know. People yeah. have seen bugs die; they've stomped on spiders and stuff. But you see a little mammal, and you know you see that reptile come out of its hole, grab it, and you hear the little, little rack, oh, ee! <laughs> and you know it it gives people a very strange feeling. I've seen, hmm. and a lot of people just don't like it. It, it upsets them to watch it die it's like this is what happens yeah if you didn't have this happening every city would be overrun with rats and 
you know, it's it's just it's the classic like circle of life thing. But so many people out there are just completely sheltered from that aspect of existence. And then when death does come in the form of a grandparent or even a, a spouse or a brother or sister or um, or a child, it's it's so shocking and unbelievable. It's like. I didn't think this actually happened, you know, <laughs> you know, right. I've only heard of this happening to people. Yeah. And then, and another thing, you know, this is another like huge difference or there's multiple things here, uh, you know, looking back because now it's funny because you t we talk about life expectancy a lot when we look at hunter gatherer cultures versus where we're at now. And there's a huge misconception because people are like, dude, the life expectancy now is way higher than it was then. And like, but if, if you, if you don't include infant mortality, which obviously like infant mortality is a, is a big thing and that should be looked at. That's a, that's a factor, but you can't include that in the life expectancy of an adult of an adult, right? Like that's a different calculation. So you have to you have to remove the those data data points to get like a a a uh, accurate life expectancy. And the thing is is there's almost no difference. Yeah. As but the, one where the anthropologist put it, if you make it to 5, you'll probably make it to 15. If you make it to 15, you'll probably make it to 80. Yeah, and this is the and but where the difference really is, which isn't captured in the data is that now the last 10 years, five, 10 years of people's lives are literally just them laying in a bed with a bunch of tubes and fucking medication and, and machines keeping them alive basically. Right. And, yeah. and this is another, another aspect of this. So, uh, like for, for example, my grandmother just passed away. And she had to live like the last five years, I would say she was living in just constant pain and she was completely depressed. So like she was just living. Oh, I, I wouldn't say a nightmare, but like, I mean, she broke her hip. I so probably she couldn't, would, man. Sitting in yeah, the hospital I mean, it's... in pain and, and hyped up on all kinds of drugs and machines and being super confused. It's pretty fucking nightmarish, dude. Yeah, I mean, she wasn't to that. Like, she wasn't living in the hospital. Like, she was ah. able to to stay at home. Um, But, like, you know, she can't sleep because yeah. she has chronic pain. And she doesn't like taking the medication because it makes her feel weird. Mm -hmm. And, like, but but the, the thing is, is, like, so if we if we go back... Uh, if we go back in time, if you break your hip when you're 70, 80, like you're dead. It's, yeah. it's game over. But also people aren't really breaking their hips because they're moving. Yeah. So they, they actually, they, yeah, yeah they maintain. year old hunter gatherer is actually pretty capable of doing most of the physical tasks that they exactly. need to do. And just walking around, like going yeah. from A to B without like, cause, cause when you're sitting down all the time, your muscles end up atrophying and then you can't even hold your own body weight. 
And so, you know, she's ending up in this situation where she's completely alone. She's just sitting on a couch, looking at TV, watching TV, super depressed, in pain. And then the pandemic comes around and now she can't even meet with her. uh, I mean, pretty much the the one my dad was like one of the few people who would go and see her and help her and and you know take care of her obviously here it's totally different though too because she had they have uh workers who basically just go around and help old people with their shit like mm-hmm. here's your medication here's food you know they have, they have a that here they, too but it's just not not as prevalent yeah, so you gotta, but, you gotta but, have that dough. Yeah, so but the point here is okay, so we've we've already discovered that we're we're not living any longer really. Maybe yeah. a, maybe a year or two longer, but we're living in in disease. We're like we're living with disease and with pain and suffering for the last so we're just stretching out the last years of our lives to be as painful and shitty as possible basically yeah. uh, just just to because no grandma can't no she can't die she can't Delaying and it's like dude the inevitable yeah and you know it, it people will probably think it's weird to say this but for me when i found out that she died like i felt relief for her yeah because she was in so much pain and that's where that like platitude of she's in a better place now like that's actually true like I, I regardless even if it's just nothing like yeah. nothing is way better than that yeah. way fucking better yeah. uh and a, and of course it's a huge relief for my dad who's been having to take care of her and and just emotionally every time you're talking to somebody and all they're just in so much pain and they have no one to talk to all they can do is just express their their own suffering yeah so like that's a that's a burden. Yeah, it's a dra- drain on your energy. Yeah, and of course like you can't I mean you and that's you have not what to, they want to be. Exactly. So there's so many things here where it's like like I'd rather just be dead. <laughs> yeah. But we have this weird thing where we have to hold on and, and we have to um prolong the inevitable uh yeah. until it's just yeah. It's, we value life, but not quality of life. Yeah, and and that's and it really reminds me the perfect uh, the idea that I've heard that I think is so true. And again, it's kind of a cliche, but it's like those who are afraid of death are actually afraid of life. Mm. Because if you truly live life, then you're not afraid of death. I like that, and I think that's. I would I agree. Think that's on point. And a, a big part of that, I would say, is like, like for me, if a doctor came to me and said, "You've got a terminal illness. You're gonna die in six months," um, I'd be satisfied with like the life that I've lived so far. Like, I'd be yeah. happy with what I've what I've done. I'm sure there'd be things that I would be disappointed I don't get to continue on like the podcast Mm -hmm. but I would be happy with what I've done in my life and I would be satisfied with like my experience on earth 
and I think that that is a big plays a big part of that sentiment is like if you oh, yeah. if you haven't lived life if you haven't really lived and you have all these dreams and goals and um desires that you've never fulfilled then you probably are afraid of death but the, the thing is it's it's uh it's not going anywhere you can be afraid of it all you want you can hide from it all you want but it's still coming and that's for sure there will come a point you know in your 60s or 70s where those things those dreams those goals that you have that you want to fulfill that make you afraid of death they start getting further and further from your reach and you you you're incapable of doing a lot of them um yeah one thing that uh has happened in my family is that my my grandparents they were very diligent about saving for retirement and you know they they were planning on doing all this cool stuff and my granddad had a stroke and mm. he's still alive but he can't go out and do all that stuff mm. and there may be a day when he's healed enough but you know it's it's the classic since we're getting into the uh, philosophy side here yeah this is perfect perfect yeah. segue the classic carpe diem sort of thing you know mm. and people people get that that sentiment really um really misconstrued i think that people have kind of a skewed version of of what that really means yeah they, they, their version of carpe diem is yolo yeah i was about to which say is, i'm gonna do YOLO. stupid shit yeah. because it's it's funny or it's cool yeah. or whatever yeah i'm gonna do stupid shit because i'm gonna die anyways but no that's not it the, no. the the thing is the the sentiment is live for today and be in the moment because you're not going to live forever yeah and it's actually i mean this is a perfect segue because the the next segment uh so uh, another reoccurring segment that we've that we've done before is this is practical philosophy right so the connection uh in this case with so we're going to we're going to delve into stoicism a little bit and I'll just start with the connecting point and then we can kind of like dive into it uh into some other practices and how how they relate to this subject but I really like just to talk about practical philosophy as a as a segment for a second I love this this idea because uh in in the few philosophy classes that I've taken it's always like so abstract and so cerebral and and incomprehensible that it's just like what's the point of this after you yeah. you know it's kind of fun and you do it for a while but then you're like Makes okay you well there's no to say all the words exactly you but then you yeah, and then you realize like, okay, well, there's actually no answer here and there's no really way that we can answer this. So it's kind of just a waste of time. Of course, unless you're, you're of course, you can learn and have unless fun. Unless so you're not learning. Really, but, but, but so, but what I love about this segment is that we, 
we can explore those ideas and then try to find how does this actually relate? Like, how can we be pragmatic with this? And Super stoicism, aspect of philosophy. Yeah, and stoicism is uh, one of my favorite kind of schools of philosophy for that reason because it's extremely pragmatic. And the connection point that I mentioned earlier is that there's a practice, a stoic practice. Uh, it's called memento mori. So it's basically remember our own mortality. So it's a it's a practice every day or yeah, I think it was a lot of these these guys every day remember like I am going to die. Okay? There's also there's different meditations you can do uh, like death death meditation. There's a lot of different ways that you can do it. Going to the cemetery. Yeah, that's one that's, meditation is one I was going to mention. Classic that's a perfect Buddhist one. Move. Yeah, and it's uh and it's actually really interesting to see the the to compare because there's a lot of Eastern feeling stuff in, in Stoic philosophy. But is, the yeah. idea is when we remember, if, if we take the time to remember every single day that we're going to die, uh, we're going to live differently. If, if mm -hmm. I, especially there's another practice you could do like at, at, at night when you're going to sleep like imagine that you're dying and look back on the day and how do you how do you feel about dying right now are you are there things that you left is there that that difficult conversation with your dad telling him that you actually do love him even though you resent him for all of the abuse or whatever the fuck i mean people have so much shit like that i'm super lucky to have a great relationship with my dad but things like that these yeah, little a lot of unfinished business unfinished business right uh get so your affairs it, in order before you need to exactly uh and that just that's just a completely different way of approaching life uh, with the understanding that we have this short period of time here and then what what is worth doing and what is worth uh, worrying about. And you know what? That actually brings, uh, brings me to another one of the Stoic practices, uh, which is the, the dichotomy of control. This one's really, really interesting. So this is, this is a practice where it's like, okay, this is the understanding. There are things that are under my control and there are things that are out of my control. And in Stoic philosophy, the only things that are worth worrying about, or, and it's not really worrying, right? Like nothing is worth worrying about, but the only thing that's worth focusing on is the stuff that's under our control. Everything else... We just have to accept. And we spend so much time worrying about these uncertainties and this stuff that's that we haven't, there's nothing we can do about it. We could all get fucking blasted by a gamma ray burst and this planet could explode instantaneously and we could all just be dead in, in one minute, right? But like, yeah, totally. is that worth worrying about? 
Yeah, I told Will something a while back, very similar, that he ended up adopting, and it was kind. Of, it's kind of my. Um, I, I didn't find out this was part of Stoic philosophy until much later. Um, but I used to have a real big problem with worry and and you know basically just it's basically just anxiety, you know. And I started to practice a sort of filter. And now it's become pretty natural, so I don't have to, like, go through the conscious steps so much. But if I find myself getting really up my own ass with worrying, I can kind of fall back on this structure. And it, it's basically like, you think about, is there something that I can do about this situation that I'm worried about right now in this moment? And even if it's something small, do it, and you'll feel better. If there's nothing you can do about it in this moment, but there's something you can do about it later, well, then you worry about it when you can do something about it. But for now, don't worry about it. And Dude, if there's that... nothing you can do about it at any point in time, then it's not worth your time. You're just going to yeah. have to wait. I just I just find like from a, from a subconscious and like psychological and cultural perspective, how weird is it that we use the term like... Cause, cause I know you don't mean this, but it's we're using we're saying, then you should worry about it. Ah. But it's like, sh no, nothing is worth worrying about. Nothing. There's no reason to worry ever. There's only the, accepting. The only thing we have to fear <laughs> is fear itself. <laughs> right. I mean, it's so weird. It, like it is weird. It's so it such a strange thing. Well, I think I, I honestly, I think that it's kind of like a lot of other thoughts and and um, conscious pro processes and subconscious processes. Um, it's an involuntary thing that kind of goes along with living in a modern society, and mm. so like I, I that was one of the reasons I came up with this little structure because. I was having such a hard time with like being incapable of stopping worrying. And a big part of that was just my childhood. And, you know, that anxiety was kind of trained into me by various things that happened. So I had to, I had to consciously practice it. I had to, to mm. do, and I still do. And there's a lot of times where outside circumstances will cause me to be really really worried about a lot of different things and sometimes it really gets me down especially if there's if there's like if it's a dynamic situation where i've got like multiple different situations going on all at the same time and it it can be pretty paralyzing and mm. that's when I, i've i've got to fall back on these techniques another technique that i use in that sort of situation is a breathing techniques um but basically the the big thing is that i i have to actually consciously do something i can't just say oh i'm gonna stop worrying about this and like logic my way out of it hmm. and um one thing i wanted to bring up that i heard while researching for this episode that i thought was really cool is um and this was this is from 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 good old Alan Watts. Hmm. There's a couple of different things I wanted to bring up from him. Is 
that behind every worry, behind every concern, is death. Oh, yeah. And if you break it down like each individual thing, you lose your job. Well, what's the worry there? You won't be able to eat. You won't have shelter. You're going to die. Yeah. Or you're going to provide. You're not going to be able to provide for somebody who's then going to die. You know, the, the social rejection thing. We've already addressed this in other podcasts, but if, if you didn't listen to those, um, a big part of why social rejection is such a big deal to us is that evolutionarily, it, most of our um, species, for most of our species history, social rejection pretty much meant death. If you get kicked mm. out of your tribe, it's very, very unlikely that you're going to be able to go find another one and you're going to survive. And it's even less likely that you'll be able to survive by yourself out in the wild. So behind all of our concerns, all of our worries, all of our anxieties lurks this specter of the end of, of our life, you know. Mm. And that is another practical thing that's helped me a lot is like taking a worry that like I'm, I'm you know, I'm really concerned about this. And then like getting into why I'm worried about it and breaking it down ad infinitum to that death place. Like where yeah. is where is death in this concern? Because death doesn't really freak me out all that much when I actually think about it directly. It's right. all this all this veneer that ends up freaking me out. Yeah. Potentially losing a job. Um, you know, freaking one one thing that I th- I used to think about is like being worried about accidentally dying and making my family really sad. That's another thing. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. I'm not worried about the actual experience of me dying, but I'm concerned about my family's experience of me dying. Yeah, and that gets into a, it. Like it sneaks in in all these different ways. Yeah, but it's, it's... if you do this, you'll find you'll find death in all the worries if you break them down. It's actually funny because the Stoics actually address this uh, certain aspects of this with another practice, uh, which is like the practice practicing misfortune. So I think it was Epictetus, or it might have been Seneca, but like one of what the epic Epictetus. so yeah i mean kind of like the some of the the main figures in in stoicism like you if you've heard about it at all marcus aurelius is like one of the one of the most most famous ones he was like that's emperor marcus aurelius to you buddy yeah i mean he was known as like basically the last great roman emperor um and then you have epictetus and seneca and like but one of them i don't think it was uh aurelius but one of the other two he he would practice i think it was uh, i i i can't remember which one it was but basically it's this practice of misfortune so he was really well off uh he yeah he was making good money but what he would do is is he would just practice being homeless for a few days so Great he would just like to go... start with this practice, be wealthy. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it's easier to do when you're wealthy, but like, but you can do it in different ways. Like that's obviously yeah. a very, um, 
it's an that's extreme like, way to do it. That's an extreme way to do it. But another way to do it is like, okay, what about just going into the woods? What about just mm -hmm. practicing being uncomfortable, living in a tent? Like that, that's the same. That's basically the same thing, right? Try walking I, for a day instead of using your vehicle. Yeah. These all these little things like practicing, practicing misfortune, so that when it arises, when it inevitably arises, mm. you you have the the wherewithal and the the confidence in yourself that you're gonna be able to make it through. Uh, and there's a, they have a bunch of really really interesting practices and like they actually what's what's what intrigued me a lot with stoicism is they're like really into logic as well yeah. and there's a connection because the the logos the word logos is like that would be the corollary of of god basically or the Tao or the universe and is deeply connected to the idea of logic so they felt like there was a really structure in the universe yeah, an order like, to the universe and yes in, in all in all levels yeah and so what and their conclusion with that is like everything is this is how it's supposed to be so there is another practice amor fati love fate so anything that happens there's just a not only not just like a passive acceptance but an actual genuine love for the challenges uh, and the gifts and everything that happens in life. And that's another thing, you know, coming back to this idea with death. If we love, if we truly um, internalize that practice and, and love our fate, then death is a trifle at that point. Yeah. Some of our more astute and well-read listeners may notice that there is a uh, a lot of close correlation between Stoicism and Buddhist philosophy. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, because they, I, I have to think. Although I, I don't have any. This is just pulling completely out of my butt. But just based on kind of like the timelines and the simple fact that there is a lot of trade between these regions, I have to think that there's a there was a lot of like exchange of ideas between the Grecians and the Romans and the, uh, you know, the the Chinese and Indian uh, mystical traditions. And, yeah, you know, I, I think I'd have to I'd have to double check the timelines, but I think that Confucian Confucian Confucius and Lao Tzu were before the the advent of um, like general Socratic philosophy. I think so. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm pretty not sure totally sure on that. I'd have to double check, but I know that that there was a lot of um, there was a lot of establishment and writing of the Buddhist traditions and um, I believe the Taoist traditions before the um, before all this sort of um, exploration of, of philosophy and I'm, I'm definitely positive that it was before someone like Marcus Aurelius because he was pretty late in uh, Roman history right dude 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. But I, I just, I, I have to laugh that you bring that up because I have a little, um, a little excerpt here from Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. I'm, I'm, uh, and this is actually, yeah. I'll just, I'll just, I'll just read it, and then I can tell you why, why I, I'm laughing. How good it is when you have roast meat or such like foods before you to impress on your mind that this is the dead body of a fish. This is the dead body of a bird or pig. And again, that this Falernian wine is the mere fermented juice of grapes. And your purple-edged robe simply the hair of a sheep soaked in shellfish blood. And in sexual intercourse, that it is no more than the friction of a membrane and a spurt of mucus ejected. <laughs> wow. Way to really uh, kill the mood there, Marcus. I bet you're really popular at the orgies. I mean, so it's it's kind of, I mean it's kind of hilarious, like but it. it's That's a cool, but it's that's also cool it's also very much connected to because basically, like, what this is, is this is just the practice of of seeing what is. Yeah. Right? Like, it's not, it's, 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 um, seeing through the, the, the cultural layer of, like, value and, like, how we, and it's actually just seeing what is there. Yeah. So it's to me that's like a very it's like my it's like a mindful mindfulness practice basically. Yeah. Um and so that's that's why I was laughing because you just perfectly introduced that without me even uh even without us <laughs> deciding yeah. to do that. And it actually just one more. I just wanted to read two two different ones. These are both entries from Marcus Aurelius. And by the way, just to talk about this book, Meditations, it's super interesting Great because book. he this was his journal. Like he did not expect anybody to look at this or see it ever. Yeah, and you and can he, tell. When, and you can tell yeah, it. absolutely. You can tell the way that he's writing it, but <laughs> he it's name, just, name drops a bunch of random people. <laughs> yes, he does. Especially in I the beginning. I learned this from Sebadaba. And I learned yes. this from Pebadaba. From Epictetus, the blah, blah, blah. Um, but yeah, okay, check this out. Okay. Uh, so this is like, this is, I'll just read it first and then we can talk about it. Men seek retreats for themselves in the country, by the sea, in the hills. And you yourself are particularly prone to this yearning. I think he's talking to himself <laughs> but all this is quite unphilosophic when it is open to you at any time you want to retreat into yourself no retreat offers someone more quiet and relax more quiet and relaxation than that into his own mind especially if he can dip into thoughts there which put him at immediate and complete ease and by ease, I simply mean a well-ordered life. So constantly give yourself this retreat and renew yourself. The doctrines you will visit there should be few and fundamental. 
sufficient at one meeting to wash away all your pain and send you back free of resentment at what you must rejoin. Mm. So basically, this fucking guy is woke as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just so wish we could have somebody that thoughtful and uh, considered and well-read in places of, of actual governmental power. I mean, I'm sure they, they're out there, but it just seems like there's so little of that introspection aspect to a lot of people in actual political power. And, yeah. I mean, if you are... Even, even if it's not something big like that, even if you're just a manager at a business um, or even a parent, it's really, really important if you're responsible for other human beings to have this introspection and to have this, um, this sort of ability to consider your life in all, its, all of its angles. And one of the most important angles to consider about your life is what context it exists in and as, yeah. uh, as alan watts always says you know the reason why you have life is because death is a thing yeah that's the reason that's, that, that is the the polarization of our life the other side of the coin yeah you can't have a wave without a trough you can't have light without dark you can't have life without death and if you ignore that, then I actually think that you're you're not just missing out on a lot of like healthy aspects of of having a, a good relationship with death, but there's also like there's a lot of joy that can come with that acceptance. And there's a lot of like just general catharsis and Oh yeah. Um you know, it makes it a lot easier to sort of have fun with things like that and be humorous. And, um, you know, when the inevitable comes, you can also be much better at comforting people who are mourning. And you can be a source of strength because you have that attitude, that work in to accept death. And um, I, I just love all these things because, as you said, they're so practical. And as we've said a few times already, we need to do actual things for this. You can't just logic your way into accepting death. You have to kind of do some work on it. Yeah. You can't just be like, oh, yes, death it is inevitable. Oh, wow, I'm suddenly awake. I've yeah. become enlightened. Yeah, it's like it's like we've talked about already. Like, I mean, sometimes you can have a really powerful experience that will yeah. that will break through and change your subconscious paradigms. Yeah. But uh without that, like it, it needs to be reinforced over and over and over and over again before we actually believe it at that level yeah, that we operate level. from. And that's what people don't understand is people think that we're operating from our conscious like the way that we think about things like but the the paradigms are subconscious of course yeah 
if we're truly, if we're like really fucking awake, if we're super aware, then we can, uh, you kind of steer it a little bit. You can steer it a little bit. Right. But there's, but the, what is when you get triggered or something like (laughs) that's coming from a subconscious place. Um, and like, then the conscious layer, we have the ability to like choose what we do given that, what the feeling and the, you know, what the situation, right? Yeah. So, but yeah, so it's, it's really the, like you said, like it's, we can't just, there's a, there's a huge difference between an intellectual understanding and knowing. Yeah. And I would say that the two, things that are the most difficult to control for most people are in in this context are death and sex because that's the um that's like our 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 deepest most ancient drive is to continue existing and spread the dna that allows yeah. existence to continue. Those are our most um, intrinsic instincts as yeah. living beings, and the probably the one aspect that all life shares is you know besides the somebody's out there going to be like actually, sir, all life is water based on Earth. <laughs> Slap you, carbon based um, life form. <laughs> but um. But yeah, you know, we we have this extremely deep-seated instinct to survive. And you're not necessarily trying to, like, get rid of that, but you're trying to sort of get a handle on that, on that feeling, to where you, you have some control over it. And um, people have come up with all kinds of different systems to deal with that. And one of the most prevalent systems that we have not addressed yet but we will is of course religion and every religion has its stories its theologies about death and what happens afterwards and a lot of people who aren't religious or who are you know, specifically a religious, you know, people who are um, pretty hardcore atheists and stuff like that, they might look at religion as simply a way to deny this whole thing of, of, of death and a way to get around it by some sort of loophole that they come up with. And I definitely think that there's something to be said about that. And there's there's some escapism involved with a lot of these theologies. But I think that that's a massive oversimplification. And there's actually mm. a lot of beauty to be found in many religious approaches to death. But one thing I wanted to get into a little bit is some of the different some of the different afterlifes of different religions. Have you looked into any of this, Hank? Have you um, ever heard much about the uh, sort of afterlife of of various religions? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the ones that I'm most... I, I love 
I love pagan religions. I think they're extremely interesting. And um, the main ones that I am like familiar with is uh, the concept of the underworld from mm-hmm. Greek mythology, which we mm-hmm. kind of talked about a little bit with the myth of Sisyphus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also one of my favorite ones is the concept of Valhalla from uh, norse mythology that's like that's such and it's it's so it's so epic because it's like if you live and die as a warrior you receive that's where you receive the greatest gift of all which is to dine with the gods and you know of course it it was used for for violence um but i I look at it from a met- like from a metaphorical perspective and it's just beautiful like that it's especially just fun dude I mean yeah. how cool is that I mean yeah you you can get all woke on me but how cool is that concept we're talking about thousands of years ago you Dude can't... even now as a as a metaphor just as a metaphor oh, yeah, it's a very like a cool metaphor Think about being a warrior for you know the good of all beings you yeah know, there's a lot of exactly a lot of, uh, you can be a peaceful warrior that's yeah completely valid by the way way of the peaceful warrior great book yeah. um yeah there, there's there's a lot of interpretations of being a warrior in, in a metaphorical sense and so yeah that's a really cool aspect um and you know thor was a cool movie um But there's there's so many of these really cool things. And actually, I'm glad you brought up the underworld because that is a really prevalent one. There's a lot of religions that have this this underworld. And one thing that I was really confused at is, is like a, a little kid reading Greek mythology and stuff is that I grew up with the, the heaven and hell thing. And I just assumed yeah. that was what most religions had. Right. If you follow our religion, you go to heaven. And if you don't, you go to our version of hell. Hmm. Um, but I found out that the Greek underworld is a lot more of like an, a reincarnation purgatory or a bardo, like in Tibetan Buddhism. Hmm. And um, they had reincarnation as like a, like a standard explanation. Hmm. So the underworld in these... And a lot of these traditions is actually this place where you go and either get, you know, beat up on for a little while for being a dick in life or rewarded for a little while. Yeah, work out a little (laughs) karma and then you get sent back into the world in a a reincarnation appropriate to your past deeds, Mm. which is pretty much the, uh, the Hindu version, too. Yeah. And... Interestingly enough, it was actually the the standard for early Christianity, and um, still is in a lot of Jewish sects. This this is actually reading about some of these. The weirdest one, the most difficult one to get a straight answer out of, was Judaism. And Judaism, in, 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 there's Old Testament Bible verses that talk about this place called Sheol, which is essentially the underworld. It's, it's essentially the same thing as Hades. But 
What I found is that there's actually like a lot of ambiguity in the Jewish religion about the afterlife. And some of them believe in a heaven and hell kind of dichotomy. Some of them believe in reincarnation. Some of them believe in this sort of purgatory until the, the end days and then there will be a judgment and annihilation of the bad souls and a raising up of the good souls. And then, you know, there's there's also certain groups that refuse to answer the question and leave it mysterious. Um, but I found that to be really interesting because growing up, that was like the number one thing. And I think in a lot of Christian cultures, especially in America, that's the biggest deal. What happens after you die? And uh, there's a lot of Christians out there who have been brought into the religion through fear of this hell concept, not yeah. out of any kind of love for Jesus or love for the religion or, you know, feeling of, of well-being. They, get, they, they come to it through fear. And I've, I think that there's a lot of this in religion. It's kind of the, um, the bad, the negative manifestation of this. Because there's, there's so much that, obviously, you and I have read about the, these sort of beautiful, poetic interpretations of the afterlife that don't try to put any, um, any concreteness to it, but kind of, it's kind of like a song or a poem. And then you've got these very stringent um, sort of tools to keep people afraid. And they're usually very ordered. And I've noticed that that's, that's one of the differences I see in the places that are meant to scare people or the concepts that are meant to scare people versus the concept that are meant to inspire people. Mm. The concepts that are meant to scare people are pretty like ordered you, you like you do this and you do this or you get or you're gonna get burnt <laughs> forever <laughs> you're gonna get fried forever that's that's actually one of the big things that i see eternity is often one of the things that's used in these uh, judgmental things yeah and because it's hard for a human being to <clears throat> think about that and if if you say to somebody Oh, you're going to get burned for 10 years. You know, you could kind of you can kind of be like, okay, well, 30 years of good times, 10 years of <laughs> shitty times. I'm going to I'm going to take my chances. But if you say you're going to suffer for eternity, there's no like loopholes the brain can use to get out of that. Like, oh, it's going to yeah. be shitty forever. And there's nothing in in our experience that is eternal. And I would say that there's not really a whole lot out there that is eternal except for maybe just existence itself. But that is a, a concept that is often used, and that's an example of what I'm talking about here with this order. And there's usually some kind of step-by-step -step thing that you have to do to get into this non-eternal damnation place. Yeah. And obviously with the with the Christians, it's you've got to say the Jesus prayer. And, you know, there's, there's all these different... Um, Conditions? Conditions, yeah, that's a that's a good word for it. There's like prerequisites mm. and they're 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 specific and they're precise. And that's to me the biggest red flag 
that makes it obvious that they're used to control people. Mm-hmm. And the the place to look if you want to get into this stuff and, and, and get into the more positive manifestations of religious approaches to death is look at, as I was saying, look at like poets and look at art artisans and look at music and look at um, the writings of, of mystics and um, also the, the writings of, of like some of the bigger people in the, in the religions, you know, there's a lot of various saints in the Christian religion that have had beautiful writings on death. There's a lot of beautiful uh, things in the um, the Hindu Upanishads. Mm. Um, the uh, the Kata Upanishad is actually particularly cool in this one. Uh, this, this guy, Nachiketa, goes and um, decides to ask death himself. They call him Yama the god of death that he decides to ask him about like the secret of death and he goes he ends up like meditating for like like three days and three nights and not moving and not eating or drinking any water or anything like that and death feels bad because like it's just it's classic like funny weird mythological story where Nachiketa through his like spirit body is like sitting on the stairs of death's house and death was like having like a dinner party or something. He was like otherwise busy and he felt bad that he left Nachiketa sitting on the stairs for so long. And so he's like, come on in, come on in. I'll give you, basically he's like, I'll give you three wishes. And Nachiketa hmm. ends up asking him, you know, about this, the, the secret of death. And, um, and Yama explains the, the whole thing to him. And it's this beautiful poem. And it was actually written obviously in Sanskrit. So it gets a little difficult to translate in some places, but uh, Eknath Ishwaran has a great book called The Essence of the Upanishads that does a whole deep dive explanation into the Kata Upanishad and then goes through it, uh, an English translation of it. And um, that is a perfect example of what I'm talking about in these positive things. Like it, it's a beautiful work it's very interesting and it's it's a story it's a cool story and i think that there's a lot of these helpful positive stories mythologies theologies that you can look into and it can help you in the same way that some of these philo- philosophical exercises that we got into in the last segment do. Hmm. You know, if you read a, uh, like if you read that book, I was just saying the essence of the Upanishads, it may not like answer all your questions about death or change your attitude towards your particular chosen theology, whether you want to believe in this or that afterlife. But it will make you feel a little bit better about the subject. And it it paints death in a lot more of a positive light. And that's one thing I really love about Hinduism is that it 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 sort of takes the fear of death out. And um, Buddhism, in a lot of ways, does that too. But I think a lot of the, the monotheistic and Abrahamic religions 
end up turning death into this boogeyman because they've used this concept of, of eternalism as a sort of bludgeon for the human brain because mm. we can't conceptualize it. And, you know, what what bigger extreme can you take than if you follow me, eternal pleasure, if you don't, eternal suffering? Right. It just seems so simplistic. Yeah. But that's what most of the world believes in. Hmm. I mean, I guess at a certain level, like, it's... Yeah, it's it's a lot easier to conceptualize a reality that is that simple. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, you know, it just makes, it makes it easy. Because yeah. then it's just, okay, so I just follow what the guy in the hat says and then i'm good and if i don't then Oops, i just give pick it, the wrong hat yeah like if i don't Down i just give him, give him money and then i still get <laughs> yeah. to go to heaven anyways give me money <laughs> that's okay people if somebody is telling you that all you have to do to get to heaven is to give them money i would uh highly highly recommend uh going to a different place of worship or even better just creating your own personal personal place of worship within your own experience they want you to send your money to the lord but to give you their address you ever hear that song no it's like talking about tv preachers oh man yeah you don't you don't um that's a pretty easy red flag if yeah. somebody is demanding money from you and and even if it's in a in a nice way like i remember going to this church one time and i i just i felt so weird about this and i i went like a few times to see if this was just an exception but no this was a this was like a regular thing they did pretty much every day and it was the same gal this lady who who wasn't the pastor, this pastor was like a, he's a typical. I, I I don't know the guy. He actually seemed like a really nice guy, but he he was like typical TV pastor you'd see. He had you know he he had this really excited voice, and he always would like clap and point at people and get up <laughs> close to you. And he was very charismatic, you know. Yeah. But before he came out, there was always this lady who just you know classic, classic um like overly intense sounding white lady from the suburbs. Oh and god, with a she... massive stick up her ass. <laughs> like a yeah. fucking and she would come out before every service and she would fucking guilt everybody into tr- into donating. She'd say stuff like like we're not saying you have to donate. But the Lord wants you to donate. It says very clearly in the Bible that you are to donate to your church. You are to tithe. This is your responsibility. And if you are not doing that, then you're inviting a whole lot of problems on yourself. Like she would say stuff like that. And it's basically like, a threatening. It was basically it, a threat. Literally, it was like a coercion. It was. It was never. It was. There was always. There was always like a little bit of like. If you, if you you know show your love for Jesus and things like that but it's just like if the the imply the implied the implication was love equals money it was a lot more like 
if you don't donate, then I'm not so sure you love Jesus. It was just like this really sleazy, underhanded coercion to give money. And, you know, once once again, as I have in the past, um, I'm picking on the Christians here because I have more experience with that community, but this happens in every religious space. And, you know, people have been using religion to grift people since the beginning of religion as a concept. So that's an easy red flag. If somebody's demanding money from you or, you know, cajoling you for money, then probably not the right place to go. But, I mean, the freaking... Most of these most of these people that we're talking about, Eknathish Warren and Alan Watts and a lot of the uh the saints and mystics and stuff their their stuff is cheap or free to find yeah and you can experience it for little to no money and usually yeah, if dude, you do dude. actually buy it like if you buy one of Eknath Ishwaran's books your money is going to the Blue Mountain Center for Meditation which is like a great meditation teaching facility yeah, and it's been doing a lot of good work for a long time. Or if you get one of Ramdas's books, which is another person I wanted to bring up but didn't get a chance to very much, but um, you, you, it's going to the Love Serve Remember Foundation. And they do all kinds of charity work. So a lot of the people who um, you would actually want to hear from, if you do end up giving them money, you're you're giving it to a good group, a good cause, yeah. instead of you know some random church that's trying to increase the size of their parking lot yeah or buy another private jet or whatever our cross it's pine we want a mahogany cross <laughs> we gotta you know Jesus only the best for Jesus even the cross and oh, especially man. my pulpit <laughs> yeah yeah did you ever read much um, much of Ram Dass's stuff. Uh, I've just read "Be Here Now." Be here now. He has a lot of good stuff on there uh, out there about death. A lot of great talks. A lot of great. Oh books. man, there's so much. There is like, there is just so much good content out there for this. These ideas, like you mentioned, like I mean, there's countless mystics and um i mean like you can you can literally oh it's just like it's almost like where to where to begin you know yeah. because there's so many different flavors also i mean you talked about like some of the different christian saints uh you talked about ramdas i mean but you can look at guys like gurjev osho um i mean jebus he said some cool stuff. Boot the Buddha. Like, there's just so there's so mi so much good stuff out there. Yeah, so take many. Your pick. Yeah, just take your fucking pick. I mean, Marcus Aurelius. Like, this shit yeah. is is gold. Uh, and even yeah. now, I mean, oh, where to where to even begin, dude? Yeah, I was gonna. Let me see if I can get the actual name of this. Um. Ramdas, by the way, for those who didn't who didn't know, um, he died last winter. 
and he not too long before he died he wrote a book with um his very good friend and um buddhist teacher mirabai bush called walking each other home conversations on loving and dying mm. and ramdas had a stroke some years back and ever since then he for those who don't know ramdas is it was a prolific speaker and I actually would like to, I wanted to mention this to you, I'd like to do a little biography on Ram Dass, biography segment on him down the road. He'd be a great Yeah, that would be interesting. Um, worked a lot with Timothy Leary in, uh, on the acid trials in Harvard. So we'll get into that another time. But mm. after he had his stroke, he couldn't talk. And he had talked all over the country, all over the world for years. And that was one of his, like most well-known gifts was his ability to verbalize and speak beautifully on um, on spiritual subjects. But after he had his stroke, the funny thing that happened was that everybody said, the, the, the sentiment that I kept hearing from people who talked about it was that now instead of talking about it, he became it after he had his stroke. Mm. And people around him said he just radiated this love and good energy and he would just he'd see people on the street and ragu marcus would be pushing him around in his wheelchair and they'd just like start bursting into tears and they'd go up and hug him and he could barely even talk you know listening to him like he couldn't talk very well but Mm -hmm. he could smile and he could like listen to people and acknowledge people and he'd just say this weird stuff like, you know, people would be like, what should I do? You know, how, how should I do? And he'd just be like, just be here. <laughs> just be right here. Yeah. And and um, when he died, like so many people have had experiences with him after he died. And there's been a lot of interesting stories out there about people who have said that he actually became a lot more of a powerful presence in their life after he died. Hmm. And so if you want to if you want to check out oh yeah, last thing I'll say about him is that he actually worked with people and was known for working with people um during the process of them dying. So before he had his stroke, people would actually ask him to come and and like aid their family through the process of a beloved family member dying. And there's a lot of talks that he does like describing these processes. And he did pretty much the same thing for his dad too. And there's some really interesting stories and perspectives he can give you on what it's like to be around somebody when they're when they're dying what it's like to comfort a family when their loved one is dying what it's like to be like present with a dead body and not being freaked out by it um and and i think that that's that's a really valuable perspective you can get and you couldn't get it from a better place ram das is an absolute joy to listen to speak or read so that's another one to check out. You got any other uh, recommendations for the people? 
Oh man, I mean, like I said, where to start? It's all about like what you're what you're looking for. I mean, another I guess some other people you could check out kind of contemporary like guys who are still alive. You have people like Sadhguru, uh Muji. I mean, it's they they all have all of these people that we've mentioned, they're all pointing at the same thing, but they just have their own flavor. They have their yeah. own um there's something unique about them. They have like, uh, so it's all about like, what, what do you gravitate towards the way, the ways of, of speaking and thinking about these ideas and the different practices that they, um, kind of share. And I mean, all of this, this work, this kind of work now we're it. I mean, it's all, it's very related to this idea of death, right? Because yeah, it's it's the art of living. It's the art of of meditation being... is often called preparation for death. Yeah, and it's also like it's it's gonna it supercharges life at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I have something for people to check out. That's uh. A little easier than getting into some of this uh, theological and philosophical stuff. Um, for anybody out there who's, who's watched the Midnight Gospel, mm. um, Duncan Trussell's show, the I think it's second to last episode has Death as the last, guest. I think it's the last episode. No, the last one is with his mom. Oh, um, okay. I thought that's what the one you were talking about. No, I'm talking about the one with death. Although that that's another good one, actually. I'm I'm glad you yeah. brought that up. Because um, Duncan does two podcasts with his mom um, after she basically gets diagnosed with terminal cancer. And the first one, she's still like doing pretty all right, but she knows she's going to die. And the second one, it's like, it's coming. And um, those are great, great podcasts to listen to for... Um, for a completely different reason than the one I was going to mention, actually. The one I was going to mention is with, I think it's, her name, uh, is, you pronounce it, Kate, Caitlin Doughty? D-O-U-G-H-T-Y. Doughty? Um, on my app, it's number 318. I'll probably put a link in the description for that one and maybe the mom episodes. But um, it's with a mortician. And she plays death in that in the second to last episode of um, the Midnight Gospel, but the I think the full episode is really really worth checking out because mm-hmm. she goes into all this this stuff that she's seen as a mortician, and she kind of gives a breakdown of like what the approach we should be taking to death. And she has, she's written a book on it, and she's, I mean, it's an incredible podcast. It really changed my whole perspective on the process of dying, how I would like to die, as long as I stay healthy and die in a, you know, manageable way like that. And also how I plan on dealing with the death of my parents when the time comes. Mm. And it's, it's so beautiful the sort of perspective she has on it and she doesn't take it into any 
anywhere weird. She actually specifically says she doesn't really have a belief in the afterlife, but she's like obsessed with the with the death. With death as a concept, and she's got an absolutely incredible perspective and and sort of like recommendation on how you should deal with somebody dying. And one of the most interesting things that I'll say as a little teaser for it is that she actually says that you should leave the dead body like in your living room for a, a day or two mm. and you should sit with it. Yeah. And she she talks about how, you know, people are afraid of it, but there's no reason to be afraid of it. She was like, yeah, pretty much everything that makes them dangerous, all the diseases and stuff that stops happening when you die. It doesn't mm. suddenly turn into this like poison that you can get a disease from. That's a medieval attitude from like plague victims and stuff. Yeah. And so that that's a great podcast to check out. The ones with his mom are great to check out. But yeah, as you said, you can pretty much start anywhere in on this subject. There's so much great info, great resources out there, and I'll put a few of them in the uh, in the description. Awesome. Well, uh, I guess there we have it, huh? There we have it, bud. Another episode of Casual Cognition. Bing! <laughs> this is why I don't want to die anytime soon. This is Because the... I'm just having too much fun making this podcast. I, uh... I could say and will say the same thing in less words. I'm pretty sure you're up to more words right now. Ditto. (laughs) All right. All right. We'll catch you next week. Have a good one. See you next week. Later. There you have it, folks. Hopefully, we're all feeling a little bit better about our own mortality. If not, try pressing the subscribe button. Early trials have shown that there is a potential correlation between subscribing to our podcast and reduced anxiety around the end of your own existence. Give it a shot and let us know how it goes. And we'll see you next week.